This is Vanderbilt Business. The scale and impact of the opioid crisis in America are tough to measure because the numbers are so large, the effects so profound, and the demographics of those affected are so diverse. In this edition of Vital Signs, Professor Larry Van Horn breaks down the facts behind the crisis and looks at potential solutions with Marketing Director Amy Katz. Good afternoon, Larry. Thanks so much for your time to talk about the opioid epidemic. Uh, really excited to have you today. So let's just let's just jump right in. Um, you can't read the paper or watch the news without coming across a story about this. Last year, the New York Times called it the deadliest drug crisis in American history. Tell us, how bad is it? it it's shockingly bad, actually. There are 2.1 million Americans who are uh, addicted to opioids. Um, it is probably the largest single area of delivery growth uh, in the nation's healthcare capital here in Nashville, Tennessee, with companies that are being created to treat this addicted population and with medically assisted therapy. Um, and you know, I, I've, I've looked at a lot of data, and just to, if you take Tennessee to put this in context, uh, in 2017 we had 1.6 million unique Tennesseans who had an opioid prescription at one point in time. And that's on a population of about six and a half million. So, you know, 20, 25% of the population has received an opioid prescription in, in the last year. Um, on average, we, we deliver about 300,000 opioid prescriptions per month to, the, to residents of Tennessee um, on, on, a, on a run rate basis. Uh, and, and we have uh, 116 people dying every day from opioid-related opioid um, uh, overdoses. So this is a huge issue. If you just look over the last month here, um, comprehensive pain specialists, uh, pain management, they prescribed a ton of opioids, shut down very abruptly. They're now part of a federal investigation. Um, all of opioid prescribing is under the radar screen and legitimately so. And, and it, it, the use of opioids cuts across all age demographics, all income demographics. It's higher, the, the prevalence of, of opioid use is higher in the Southeast than it is, say, in California, Hawaii, and maybe there's reasons. If you live in California and Hawaii, you probably don't have much to be depressed about and you don't have a lot of pain in your life, maybe. But so it, it's much more prevalent in the Southeast. Um, you, you said it crosses ages. Crosses so you're all. Not seeing greater concentration in seniors or teenagers. No, it, it crosses all ages. And, and there's a number of very scary things about opioids don't want to get too clinical here, but up to 20% of the population can become addicted to an opioid with just one prescription and become permanently addicted because of their genetic composition. Um, if you are addicted to opioids for a sufficiently long period of time, say two years, if you've been using opioids for two years, it's almost mechanically impossible to cure you you turn into a long-term maintenance proposition uh, for the rest of your lives, not unlike being on dialysis for end-stage renal disease. It, it, it is shocking the impact that this, this drug can have around pain management. And, and the abuse of it is, 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 is stunning. So many people who are taking opioids they're not the result of them getting a prescription from a provider. 50% um, of, of people who are taking opioids um, are given them by a friend or relative. 
So some that, that's information from, from uh, a paper in JAMA. And so the, the physicians prescribing opioids puts them in the market, but so many people who are taking opioids are not getting them directly from the provider for their, their chronic pain management, per se. Um, and so so is, this, is this an epidemic that is a painkiller crisis as opposed to an illegal drug crisis? It's both. Um, you, have, you have roughly, let's say, 17,000 uh, deaths per year overdoses due to prescription opioids. You've got about 15,000 that are due to heroin, and then about 19,000 as of 2016 that are due to fentanyl. And fentanyl can be uh, prescribed, but uh, much of the fentanyl that is, is the source of the overdoses is a result of street drug traffic activity. Um, we even have marijuana now that's laced with opioids and fentanyl. So it's it, and once you start getting hooked on it, it, it is it is very hard to treat. It's very hard to address. The 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 new move around treatment is around medically assisted therapy, MAT, um, where you combine counseling with um, suboxone or Vivitrol or methadone to manage the opioid addiction. And um, this is Suboxone and Vivitrol are the new, new technologies here. They are opioids themselves. Um, and that, that sector of, of healthcare delivery is growing very significantly. We have three or four companies that have just launched in the last two years here in Nashville or relocated to Nashville who are starting clinics in states all across the country to try to address the opioid epidemic. I, I, I'm the chairman of the board of one of those companies, and it, it's, it's a real challenge in the sense that it's hard to find good providers in this space. There are a lot of cowboys out there who are delivering care through pill mills and a lot of prescriptions, and the amount of that activity is really disturbing. Um, and the biggest challenge here is not where do you locate and go in the market because if you have a, a community of over 30,000 people, you probably have a, an opioid problem that warrants a full treatment facility. It's, it's in just about any community in the country. Um, so but that's why we're seeing more of these clinics in rural communities. In yes, everywhere. Uh, the, the challenge is, is is how we pay for these services. Mm -hmm. um, what is the much of the growth in, in of these clinics is driven by Medicaid payment policy um, that shifts and changes uh, pretty pretty quickly. But you know you have the companies like Clean Slate, um, which is a, a specialty company in this space. Uh, Karina Health is the one I'm involved with. Acadia, the nation's largest mental health provider, has got a huge footprint in in trying to treat uh, this condition. And, and one, of the, one of the more jarring and unfortunate things is as of late, because of the prevalence of the opioid addiction, you see more and more mothers delivering with opioid addicted babies mm -hmm. uh, with neonatal abstinence syndrome, mm -hmm. NAS. And now we have companies, uh, 180 Health Partners, was founded here in town by Justin Lanning, that is focused on treating the opioid addicted mom and uh, reducing the likelihood of uh, abstinence, uh, a neonatal abstinence delivery um, problem. So 
Yeah, it's it's really disturbing. It's so, scary. So, question on the the word addiction. Um, we talk, I think that for many people, it kind of triggers this AA model of treatment. So, talk about how some of this, um, some of these treatment plans are different and maybe superior to. Is, is something like counseling alone the kind that you get through AA sufficient? No, it's not sufficient. Will you? If you've been on an opioid for a long enough period of time, you mechanically rewire your brain. You will need to have some kind of maintenance drug therapy um, to live your life and be a high-functioning individual. Uh, And the old days, it was a methadone clinics. Now we have a kind of the new flavor of the Suboxone clinics or Vivitrol uh, that where patients have to come on a repeated basis over the course of the month, get maintenance prescriptions, have counseling, and have a definitive urinalysis test done to make sure they're compliant with their, with their treatment regimen. Uh, it, is, it is a very expensive and a very protracted um, care delivery model. So, you know, the, uh, there's, there's some silver linings here. Um, one thing is the uh, opioid prescribing rate has been dropping. Uh, in, in, in across the country as a whole, as well as here in Tennessee. Um, and it really started dropping in, say, late 2016. In, in 2016, uh, 2015, 2016, we were averaging about 575,000 um, controlled substance, largely opioid prescriptions per month. Um, today, we're down to closer to 350,000. So it has been dropping since late 2016 over the last two years. And is that in part due to pressure from the government and DEA? Um, it, it, it is. Uh, it is the, the, the spotlight being shined on, on the opioid issue is, has been quite significant. Um, and so that, that has certainly helped. The, the majority, the, the biggest problem in terms of how these drugs are getting out there is not surgeons, it's not um, short episodic treatment for pain associated with an intervention uh, where you get a three or five or seven day prescription. It is the chronic uh, prescriptions written largely by family medicine and internal medicine physicians. They are the, and they are the significant prescribers in the state of Tennessee. Uh, they, they account for over half of the prescriptions the internal medicine and family practitioners, um, and it's much less the uh, the surgeons or the anesthesiologists mm-hmm. or those types of individuals. It, to give you a sense for how disturbing this can be, I took a look at one month uh, a, a couple months ago in the state of Tennessee. Um, the number one prescriber in the state of Tennessee in that month wrote uh, 905 prescriptions in one month. Um, the pain medicine doc, um, but that is a pretty significant number of prescriptions in one month. Yeah. That's averaging forty-five a day, and that's it's virtually every patient the provider would see. Pretty close. Yeah. Um, you, you, you can't even. You, it's hard to even see that many people in a day. Sure. In a day. Yeah. Uh, and and this is a widespread issue. This is not. Uh, this is not an uh, isolated case where it's just happening here, it's just this subsegment of the population. I, I know too many friends here who are professionals who've had their children 
adult children uh, become addicted to opioids, and uh, it, 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 it's really sad. It's, it's, it, it is really sad. So can you give us a bit of a historical perspective? Um, why has this gotten so much worse in, in recent years? I mean, the news coverage is exploding, certainly, but it sounds like the rate of incident is exploding. Well, I, I think it, it's gotten uh, worse in that there's more, in part, there's more attention paid to it because the, the overdose rate has been increasing. Um, the use of opioids has been around a long time. Um, it's actually the case that when uh, opioids were originally introduced for pain management, providers were taught that if you were delivering an opioid to somebody who truly had pain, they could not get addicted, which was not true. This was the physician in 1968 that wrote the, the article in JAMA that said yeah. you can't get addicted. Yeah. And then all of the primary care physicians went off to the races. Yes. And the challenge is, is that you keep needing more over time. That's why so we... your dosage increases. Your, your okay. demand increases, which is why you start going to stronger and stronger forms, things like fentanyl. Okay. Which is, which is on a MME basis, morphine milligram equivalent basis, much stronger than oxycontin or a hydrocodone. So um, is there an opioid substitute? Could we just stop prescribing them? Well, it, it's interesting. This is this, I have a paper. <laughs> there is a substitute. Um, I have a paper under review right now that uh, we're just getting feedback on. I wrote with some colleagues in the law school, looking at the relationship between opioid prescribing in the United States and the legalization of marijuana for both medicinal and recreational purposes. And we looked at the prescribing behavior of 577,000 doctors in the United States. And there was very strong evidence that when you legalize marijuana in either recreational or medicinal forms, the opioid prescribing rate drops by as much as 15%. So it's not the doctor saying, oh, go, go smoke weed or something. Uh, it's, it's probably those patients are choosing not to present for pain management, for, for chronic pain management with their providers and self, instead they're self-medicating. I'm, I'm not here to, I, I, I don't know that I can say, oh, we should just legalize uh, marijuana everywhere and that's not, a, that's not necessarily the right outcome, but it's, it's hard to overdose on marijuana. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it's got other problems, but it's hard to overdose on marijuana. When I, when I talk to uh, Nashville police, uh, they've made the point that much of the um, marijuana that's in the marketplace is laced with opioids. So a clean source of marijuana that is not laced with opioids is maybe has a desirable property unto itself. Okay. Um, but I'm not here to advocate for that per se. It's just an interesting outcome as we were engaged in this debate, both on opioids as well as the uh, legalization of marijuana in the country. This paper speaks to kind of the trade-offs there. So, you know, I think a good thing is that we are actually reducing the amount of opioid prescribing but at the same time, the, opi the opioid death rate, the overdose death rate, it continues to climb. So it sounds like there's not a silver bullet um, for, this, for this fix. Is the solution, is it a policy fix? Do we need more government intervention and regulation? Or should we be looking to businesses, to industry? Is it, is it a consumer-driven demand thing? Is it a combination of these yeah, so it's a very complex situation. The reality is 
that opioids have been used for pain management and there, there's probably an appropriate use of opioids for pain management, but so much of the opioid addiction is the result of individuals taking it not for chronic pain management. And it is, it is the next illegal drug out there, whether it's cocaine or whatnot, there's, this, is, this is another form uh, of, of drug use. I trying to keep uh, providers and making sure the providers prescribe appropriately is, is sensible, but that's not going to solve this problem. Um, we have tremendous supply of illegal, illicit, um, synthetic opioids that are flooding the market. Um, it's frankly far more powerful than what they can get in a Correct. Form. Correct. Uh, and on top of it, you know, if you look at providers who are heavy opioid prescribers, you know, uh, we have the PDMP program, physician drug, uh, prescription drug man, uh, monitoring programs that e examine opioid use, uh, prescribing behavior by physicians. And you can see a physician writing a lot of prescriptions, but wait a minute, if that, if that physician has got a significant population of, of end-stage cancer patients who they're managing, um, it can be that this is an appropriate use by the provider to manage the pain of, the, of these individuals at this stage in life. So separating the pill mills uh, from the, the good providers is not the easiest thing to do. And you can't just paint everybody with this, with this broad brush. And given what you're saying about your need for more increases over time, is it even reasonable to think that we could set a regulated amount to be prescribed? No, I don't think I don't think that's possible. Okay. Um, I think you know every individual is unique, and, and having having qualified individuals um, who are certified and licensed uh, is is obviously central to this. But this is a, this is a nation national drug problem, and to say it is is the, entirely the fault of physicians prescribing opioids, well, a good portion of the opioid addiction and, and death out there is not the result of that. It's it's the illicit, uh, illegal activity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, talk about w what you're seeing businesses or companies do. Is is it strictly on the treatment front? Well, right now, that, that's the biggest growth area. Um, we've got a tremendous demand out there, uh, unmet demand for, for treatment uh, programs. And the, the medically assisted therapy is kind of the state-of-the-art uh, treatment modality and, and, and treatment regime now. And we have more and more companies that are starting there. We, they can't start fast enough to deliver medically assisted therapy and that is to prescribe suboxone you need to be regular you need to be certified by SAMHSA and physicians can be certified at either a 30 patient a hundred patient or a 270 patient level I believe I believe those are the numbers and and so you have to go through a, a waiver process for you to be legally able to treat this population period we don't have enough providers who are, yeah, the, the levels are 30, 100, and 275 patient uh, population. We don't have enough providers out there who are certified and have SAMHSA waivers to actually deliver the Suboxone. And so starting, starting up these programs is actually quite challenging. Um, because of the regulatory burden necessary to do it. And, and that it's not that it's inappropriate. It's just 
getting the providers who want to operate in this space is a challenge as well. This, this, is, a, this is a very challenging population uh, to manage um, and getting providers who want to manage this population in a clinically appropriate way is hard. So I'm curious a little bit about the stigma that I think that we're, we're probably seeing. Um, certainly these rural communities or even urban ones are recognizing that this is a problem. They want to address it. They probably don't want a treatment clinic in their own backyard. There, there is a stigma. There's a historical stigma associated with, with methadone clinics, right? Mm-hmm. With drug addicts. And that's a real challenge in terms of helping this population. But you have a, a ton of high-functioning professionals who are opioid addicted. As a and, result of some sort of injury. And, correct. Right. And, 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 and because of that, they find themselves addicted. Um, being able to provide a safe, managed uh, supply uh, of, of drugs to help this population is central to keeping them from going to other illicit forms, whether it's heroin or fentanyl or something like that. So we do really need to have these treatment alternatives out there and have them um, be separated cognitively from the historical uh, methadone clinics. And, and, and methadone is a fine drug, and it can be a very effective use, uh, can be very effectively used in treating this population. But separating that historical stigma and the population who was treated in those clinics from, uh, from the new model of treatment is central to us being able to get this, uh, the availability to the people who need, need the care. So is this a public health crisis? It is, it is very much a public health issue. Okay. And unfortunately, we in, in the United States underinvest in public health. We, compared to all other OECD countries, we spend a lot less on public health over the last 10 years, we've cut direct investment in public health while we've spent more and more in medical care. Um, so this is part of, uh, public health needs to uh, have, have more resources put in play here. Yeah. yeah, since we know the game. Okay, um, so, so as a professor of, of business management mm-hmm. and focus on healthcare, um, why should our students care about this topic? When you have 2.1 million Americans um, almost, you know, 1% of the population addicted to uh, an opioid and needing treatment. That's a huge opportunity for us to craft delivery solutions that meet their needs. It is, it's, a, it's unfortunate, but it is the next place that we need to create business models to help these people restore their lives. The best state of the world is if somebody hasn't been addicted too long is they can go through uh, an MAT program and they can come out the other side rehabilitated and cured. Um, for those who we, that, that for, the, for whom that's not possible, you're going to need to have a solution for long-term management so these people can maintain a productive lifestyle. Um, and it's not, at some level, too dissimilar from dialysis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so, and that's a huge industry unto itself. And it's central to those individuals being able to live their lives. Um, addressing this is central to these people being able to live their lives. So, so our students who are in, in our programs that, that really focus on healthcare and, and understanding and exploring delivery models, what kind of education and skills are they getting here at Vanderbilt that they can take 
that they can take out to these companies that are trying to address this epidemic? We, uh, our, our program here at Vanderbilt is very much oriented towards the delivery and financing of medical care. Um, our students get a lot of experience, both in the classroom and outside, at the patient-provider interface in where care is delivered and how do we create systems of care that, that are efficient, um, that solve the patient's needs. Um, this is a specific application of the more general uh, proposition of how do we deliver care efficiently, effectively, in the right location, at the right time, for the right people. And this population has very specific needs, um, has unique challenges um, that require tailoring the organizations that are going to deliver that care, both culturally as well as organizationally, so that they're going to be effective. One thing you mentioned is about this population, so maybe different than the um, cocaine crisis of, of the 80s. I mean, it, it sounds like this population is a lot more diffuse and, and different than... There's, yeah, that's a very fair point. I mean, there's, there's, very, there's a lot of different segments of this population. And how you can, should best serve those needs is highly varied. So it's not going to be a case of one size solution fits all. We're going to have to tailor our solution to meet the needs of these very, very different demographics. So even the companies that are out there trying to address this, are they having trouble scaling because the populations are so different? Or are uh, you finding their focus on different regions and ages? And yeah, I think at this stage right now, the models that are being used in MAT really are targeted towards one large segment, but that set, but treating that segment disenfranchises individuals who do not want to go to a clinic, do not want to, or are, are, are fraught with concerns of the stigma, the, the public visibility of it. And so we've got to figure out new ways of, of, of reaching out and connecting with different subsets of the population. And uh, that's something that, uh, you know, uh, we're still, we're still going to have to work on. Well, thank you for your time. Sure. To shed some light on, on this growing, terrifying problem. Any, any final thoughts you'd like to add? Um, be careful if a provider prescribes you an opioid. Okay. <laughs> Just be careful. Be careful. Good, good words of wisdom there. Um, Larry, thank you. Thank sure. you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks to Larry and Amy for their time this week, and thank you for listening. You can find more stories and information on Vanderbilt Business by visiting our website, business.vanderbilt.edu, or following at Vanderbilt Ellen on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. Music provided by Mike Foster. I'm Nate Luce.